Greetings, guys. Welcome to the Mastery Podcast for episode number nine. Slowly climbing to that number 10, folks. I'm your host, Master Chris Malarkey, fifth degree black belt in traditional Taekwondo. And I've got a very, very special episode for you today. Um, you should recognize the, the last name when I say it. Before I go any further, I want you to find that like, follow, or subscribe button located somewhere on your screen. That way I can continue bringing you awesome content and you can get updates on who's going to be speaking next. Uh, without further ado, Gracie, you know the last name. Started the UFC many years ago. UFC number one. F famous fighting family, if not the most fa uh, famous fighting family. Coming all the way from Brazil to the United States, choking people out, arm bars, oh, you know, all, the whole deal. There's a whole bunch of them. It's practically an army. I've got one of them with me here today. All right. But it's not who you think. Miss Quan Gracie, daughter to the legend, undefeated champion, Hickson Gracie, who just published his book, his memoir, which was an awesome read titled Breathe, A Life and Flow. Miss Quan Gracie is joining us from New Zealand. Miss Gracie, thank you for being part of today's podcast and being my guest today. Welcome. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I'm very happy to be here all the way from New Zealand. <laughs> we're knocking out, I want to let you know we're knocking out a lot of things here at one time. So I've never spoken to a member of the jiu-jitsu family before, uh, the Gracie jiu-jitsu family. I've never spoken to a female in the Gracie family, and I've never spoken to anyone from New Zealand. So that's like all three in a row right here. <laughs> <laughs> records, records. Yeah, all, all within the one minute right here. But no, um, obviously, first question to you is um, how you doing with the pandemic and everything going on? How's everything uh, with you and your family and friends? Everything with my family is great. New Zealand was actually like a safe haven. It just um, cosmically, I ended up here during this, the first pandemic. I've been here for a year and a half and this country is just so functional. They closed it off and there were no, I don't even know what COVID is. I didn't have to wear masks. I didn't have to, we, we had a six week lockdown and then everything was back to normal. And then I think we had a second lockdown that was about four weeks and then everything's back to normal. And then now we just got recently the Delta strand, which um, we are, have been in lockdown. It's going to be two weeks on Tuesday. But for me, it's a blessing. I have uh, my partner has a house up north and we go here and there's land all over water. We walk, we have hikes, trees, fruits. Oh, man. So it's like a needed vacation lockdown, actually. Beautiful. So I think it's really special. Yeah. Beautiful. Everybody's good. Everybody's good. Everybody's good on my end. I mean, we obviously have the, I think, the opposite situation. I wish we could say what you're saying right now. But, um, you know, there's, uh, there's, I guess there's a, there's a fine line. Everyone's got their own nuanced perspective on, you know, sort of how it's affecting. I think it's, uh, I think the COVID has been um, quite elegant. As I describe it to somebody, um, the best way I can put it is the longer, the longer it goes, the more complicated it is for everybody um, respectively. So if you, if you remember sort of the New York City buildings, um, and I'm from Brooklyn, I'm born there, I can, I was most fascinated by how you could have so many different things in one building. On the first floor, there could be a dance studio. The second floor could be, 
jujitsu, let's say, and the third floor can be like a law firm. And all three floors are experiencing something completely different, irrespective of the other of the other people in the other floors. So I think that's kind of um, what I see here. Um, but everybody's, uh, you know, everybody's happy and safe. We actually just came back from a family vacation, but uh, very carefully. So I'm um, just trying to give balance to, to the times that we're in right now. But thank you for asking. Um, so I guess uh, the obvious question, how did you end up in New Zealand? Uh, for people who don't know, New Zealand's 15 hours ahead of our time here in the United States on the East Coast. So how did you end up in New Zealand? Uh, I was starting Tour de Quan and it started January 1st, 2019. I was actually going to go straight to Australia and my friend in California, Brian McMorrow, was like, I think you'll really like New Zealand. It's very nature. It's raw. It's beautiful. You should go. And then I looked online. There happened to be a cheap ticket. I didn't know I needed a visa. My dad took me to the airport and you know, cosmically, it was the first time I got to the airport three hours before I've missed flights because I got there too late. And <laughs> in that time, I was able to get the visa and get my flight. I landed in New Zealand January 1st, and I was supposed to stay until February 4th. But then when I had kind of crossed the country from Auckland going south to Queenstown, I fell in love with it and I wasn't ready to go. So I ended up coming back up north to Auckland and I was gonna stay until the end of my visa, which was a three month period. And it was just so beautiful. And then in the middle towards the end, the lockdown happened. So I don't believe in luck. It was very much like a cosmos thing. This was the best place. It's the only place that I would still be able to do my work, which is very much teaching and personable. Um, yeah. Yes. That's how I ended up here. Wow. <laughs> and I can see myself leaving too. Love it so much. That's a great uh, story. I mean, just, I mean, cosmic, I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine having a better situation and the way it turns out, turned out uh, there and I'm glad it's safe. And I, and I read lots of things about how, uh, how restrictive New Zealand was from the very jump of this whole thing. So it seems like you got shot out in front. Yeah, exactly. They just go fast and go hard and yeah. Yeah. great. And, um, I, my brother's friend, Morgan, who is one of his black belts from California, was like a childhood friend of ours. He happened to have a home here and had been coming here for years, and I had no idea. So when I was here, I found out that he was here. I ended up contacting him, and we ended up being locked up together. Needless to say, a year and a half later, we're together, and <laughs> another very cosmic event. <laughs> I, I see that. I see that. Very, I see that. That's that's uh, very cool. Now, take us back. We wind the clock back. I know it's twenty twenty one, but wind the clock back for us. I mean, the obvious question. What was it like growing up with the legendary Hickson Gracie as your dad? I mean, I can't imagine what that's like. As a father, it's fascinating to me because I feel like I'm at the, or approaching, I guess, my peak in terms of, you know, my capabilities and what I'm able to do in the martial arts. So naturally I pass it down. All, all, the, all my kids do martial arts and I have a very special young daughter who's about two and a half now. Um, and I'm wondering what, what influence your father left on you and if that um has if that la impact has lasted all the way up now in what way um that's a lot of questions the first one is when you grow up 
your father is nobody but your father. Right. So he just dad, hi, poppy. Um, <laughs> and he was a great father. The influences that he's had in my life, I definitely have felt and know and the lessons and I take them with me every day. But it wasn't because of him being a fighter. It was just his whole personality is very strong and it shined through. Um, we left Brazil when I was five years old. So I wasn't raised in the ambient of my dad being a celebrity Hicks and Gracie yet, right. because in California it was still just getting started. Mm -hmm. To think when I was a kid, there were no kids classes for jujitsu. There were no women in the jujitsu academy. So it was still like, training in the academies, I mean, in the garages, and it was very Pico, the Pico Academy was very dirty, and we were, like, barely allowed to even go there. Um, so I didn't really see my father as this Hicks and Gracie. I saw him just as my father, but his influences, his subtle character-building um, gems were very relevant and still are and i have like so many stories so many things that he's taught me as far as one time i think i lied to him about something oh did you eat your lunch yeah dad i did and he knew that i was lying he just looked at me and he was like you know if you lie to me i'm not going to believe you mm. and i was like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> never lied again <laughs> right 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 He's got that, I guess he's got that energy, right? That, and that exchange there. <laughs> yeah, so he's definitely been very influential into my life, but just that father. And I think also like as a girl, you really, your father is your hero. In most cases, if you're blessed to have a present father, regardless if he is Hicks and Gracie or, a, you know, anything, a gardener, he's still your superhero. He's still working hard to give you everything you need. He's still somebody that you cherish. And I think that role, father-daughter relationship is very special. So I think that goes beyond anything that you're doing. It's just if you're present for your child and if you try to establish good morals in them, they're going to love you and remember and assimilate as much of that as they can throughout their life. That's awesome. awesome. Very, very important stuff. Um, I wanted to show you something really quick from the book. Uh, it was a picture, as a matter of fact. I thought it was pretty awesome. I don't know if you recognize that photo there and when it was taken uh, with you here and your, your sister and your father and then your brother over here on the other side. My brother and my dad was at my brother's school. They look so cool. I love that picture. Yes. And the one of my sister and my dad and I, uh, we were in Rio. I was already living there. And my sister actually came over to do a citizen of humanity campaign for my father. So we had these really nice pictures taken. It was really special. Yeah. And they're, all, they're awesome. Awesome pictures. It looked like you guys were like rolling around a little bit before uh, you took those photos. Uh, everyone's uh, very, very stoic, very serious. Um, your perception of jujitsu, I mean, you come from such a large family. I mean, I can't even begin to count. I mean, most families, I can, I can sort of guesstimate how many people there might be at any given time. Your family is so massive. So, in terms of 
I guess how close your father is to the to the art and how much he continues to be a part of a component of the art. What are some of the, I guess, the big takeaways you have from your time um, learning jujitsu from him? Um, so yeah, the family is enormous for you to just get a small glimpse. My great uncle Kahlu's had 21 kids wow. and from seven different wives, they were intentionally just trying to breed a little army. And might I add, they were very successful at that. <laughs> I remember when I moved to Brazil, my partner at the time, he would, I would be walking down the street and he would be like, Hey, Quan, this is a... Uh, Blah, blah, blah. your cousin this is your cousin Karina this is your cousin Canyon this is your cousin Hodger and there were so many of them that I had never met before wow. or knew about um, every day to this day I'm still meeting new family members I met one in Hawaii Rodrigo I met it's very exciting and very fun to be able to meet so many people in the family <laughs> and I think the more I travel and the older I get the bigger I see that my family is and how far spread out across the world it is. Um, Hobbing, my brother, my father's youngest brother lives in Spain. We have family in Brazil and the States. I think I can't even put this a hundred percent, but I think I'm the first Gracie here in uh, New Zealand, but you know, maybe there's someone else I don't know. About. We're going to, we're going to see if you can confirm that, let me know. I'll put it out there. I'll air it out there for you. However, I'll be your promoter for that, for that week. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, as far as the jujitsu from my father, I think in general, jujitsu has a lot of lessons that he's taught naturally to us, but that hopefully anyone who's a practitioner of jujitsu would get some of the main ones for me that have been very relevant and helpful in my life is like the being just very humbled. I think I teach kids nowadays. I make everybody wear the white gi. We're all the same. We're all wearing white gis. We don't have our diamonds on our Rolexes. We don't know who is wealthy and who's struggling to feed themselves. And you just see so much character. So that's something I've seen my father talk to the guy throwing out the trash. I've talked, seen him talk to emperors in Japan. I've seen him like humble down to monks. So I think that's one of the main ones. And I really take that upon myself to not judge people, to be welcoming to whoever is trying to just have a, a contact with you. I think if you can, you know, if you're confident enough to be yourself in front of who is in front of you, there's an exchange there that is more priceless than anything else. 100 percent. Great, great, takeaway. Great takeaway. Um, how long has it? How long have you been practicing jujitsu? If you were to like round it out, and for those of you, I mean, I mean, I I've been doing taekwondo my whole life, so completely different martial art, different philosophy in the sense of you know, the application of it. Um, but it sounds, it's, it's amazing how similar, I guess when you're so enveloped in the martial art, how similar all of the martial arts seem to sound after a while from people who've been doing it and invested in, and really invested in it in a way where, um, I guess much like you guys, they're proponents. That's my job now is to basically, you know, you spend enough time in it, now you spread it and give it to other people. Um, in ways that can hopefully enrich their lives as well. Now, I've got a sort of off the topic question. It's going to sound a little weird, but I think it's actually pretty cool. I was thinking about it yesterday. You cook a lot. 
Do you use any do you use any of your jujitsu in your cooking? Because your videos are awesome. I, I was watching them the other day and I was like, I wonder if that's gonna be a silly question. I'm gonna ask it anyway and see what she said. <laughs> I do cook. I love cooking. I wasn't raised cooking, and um, I, we had a housekeeper, Berta, who would make most of the food for us in the house. My dad is an excellent cook especially barbecues all the time. My mom is an exceptional cook as well, but um, they would cook Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners and we would have a regular person making our daily food. We were four kids, plus my mom and dad. So it was a big household of food all the time. Um, the cooking, I really learned a lot more, started to get involved in, with it when I lived in Italy after college. I lived there for three and a half years. I had my aunt who is married to an Italian man, my cousin, and I would observe her cooking. So that's kind of where I started to pick it up. My main philosophy about cooking is the two main ingredients you can take with you wherever you go. And that's your love for the food and your creativity. So that's partially jujitsu because in jujitsu you have to be very creative. You have to be very present in what you're doing and you've got to really love it because you're getting smashed and beat up the whole time. <laughs> but um, Yeah. So I love cooking, but that's kind of my main philosophy. I think my just overall creativity, dance, uh, jujitsu, you can put that in everything. Like everything that I am today has been an accumulation of everything that I've done and everything that I've practiced. You know, everything just makes you, puts you right to where you're supposed to be right now, if that makes sense. Yes. Totally. I've had great experiences and I've had terrible experiences, but every one of those experiences has made me who I am today. And so I have to be grateful for that. And, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> I got you. I don't want, you know, we're not asking you for any, any family recipes or anything like that. Maybe <laughs> I might. Very you know, secretive over here. <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the end, I may ask for like, you know, one or two ingredients. I don't know. We'll spice things up on my end from over here on the other side of the world. But um, another question for you, because you touched on this uh, while you were just um, giving that great answer. You also are a dancer which I find to be phenomenal um, was dance for you because you didn't take the traditional path of, you know, being a Gracie fighter. You went on to really use, and I find used jujitsu in a completely different sense um, and not necessarily allow it to define you, which is kind of like the essence of like the Gracie name, right? Is you're born a Gracie, you get a gi, your father said you get to you get a gi in your family before you even get diapers, um, which I, I believe. Um, but you sort of went off and did your own thing and I sort of divergent direction, which I think is so cool. Um, makes you very unique. Was getting into dance sort of like a rebellion for you uh, uh, going to going against the guitar on purpose or whether or was it really just you were just fascinated with something completely different, you know, and not with the, you know, the flow that the family or the, uh, the uh, I guess the destiny the family had set out for you? Yeah, I think um, so because I left Brazil, I didn't have this concept of being this Gracie. I think if I had stayed and been raised in Brazil where everybody already knew where I had had my grandfather's legacy very strong 
I would have had a different concept of myself and what I was in. I didn't really realize the legacy that I was in until I came back. So basically I moved to the States when I was five and we would always train. We've always done self-defense. We had no couch at our house. We'd poke, we'd play. It was like all ground playing. So we have the natural instincts that we were developing. Occasionally it was like, okay, come in the garage. We're going to do the self-defense and we practice all the self-defense, the hand grips, the getting, the hip throws. And we would play jujitsu. We've played jujitsu our whole life. Um, my parents never forced me to do anything, but they said I have to do something. So I was very active. We did swimming, piano, singing, basketball, guitar, dance, ballet, jazz, jujitsu. I've pretty much done every sport, every activity, like sailing camp, tennis camp. And my parents really just encouraged us to be athletic and be active. And I was very active and very athletic. When I was about 12 years old, I started really getting very passionate about dance. Also, jujitsu was kind of, like I said, there were no women in the academy. My dad's academy was a dirty man place. There were no kids classes, so there was nowhere for me to specifically go and train. My mom actually created kids jujitsu classes so that Chrome could have a place to go and train and practice, which is incredible. You know, the fact that nowadays it's like I'm teaching kids classes, there's kids classes everywhere, but she, to have that concept. Okay. No, specifically for kids. Um, so that's, I was very passionate about dance and my parents really encouraged me to be, to do what I want, to be happy. My dad always said like, Kawan, it's going to be very sad for me if you meet a prince and you move to China and I don't get to see you, but I'm going to be so happy if you're happy. So he never like really forced me to do jujitsu. We would practice the self-defense. And then I actually realized that my dad would come towards my side. Like instead of forcing me to do jujitsu, he would show me exercises and moves that would improve my dance and my groundwork and my dance and my base and exercises on the ball and different kinds of things. So he was like coming to my side with what he wanted to put inside of me as far as martial arts and reflex. In the end, the self-defense, the jujitsu is about just being able to have a reaction and to have a reflex when something happens, because there's no move that I can show you. That's the self-defense move because every situation is very different. If the person is one inch taller, smaller, bigger, a male, female, every little thing, if you're on the ground, if you're on grass, if you're on sand, every little aspect of something affects what you're going to do, but what you don't want is to freeze up. And I think that's what he would always come and bring that towards me. I ended up becoming um, a professional dancer. I graduated from Chapman University with a BFA in dance performance. And then I moved to Italy to follow my dance career there. That didn't happen. And that's where I started teaching because I don't have an accent when I speak English. They thought I would be perfect English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Little did they know that I was a Brazilian with no grammar. <laughs> but uh, my English accent was great. So that's kind of where my teaching career started. And now I've been teaching for, you know, more than half my life. And um yeah. And then after I lived in Italy, I moved to Brazil. In Brazil, 
I became really professionalized. I went back to my dancing career. I worked with Carlinhos de Jesus, who is the most famous samba choreographer in Brazil. I did commercials. I had dance classes. I was working with the company. And then I moved back to the States to start Gracie North, the, the Jiu-Jitsu Academy with my sister. So basically I was, I didn't train. Maybe between like um, 13 and when I moved back to the States, I had maybe put on a gi like 10 times. Wow. And for like seminars when Hoyt came or Horian came or I would take a picture of that picture with my dad and we'd play there. So it was very, it was inside of me, but it was kind of not something I was doing all the time. When I got back to the States and we started Gracie North, it was like, yeah, like not only did the dancing help my jujitsu so much, I realized how much my jujitsu had helped my dance, how similar they are. And I could see the jujitsu as a chess game, as the creativity of improvisation. So I was really able to bring those two together. Needless to say, my dad is a great dancer. He's very rhythmic. So they are very compatible things already just naturally. And it was actually only then in my more adult life that I started to really train more. Like before then, the only submissions that I could think of was like the arm lock and the rear naked choke. Maybe a triangle, you know, I didn't know half of it's crazy. And so I'm learning. I'm a jujitsu student. But what I think is very special is that I can teach kids. One, because I'm great with kids. I love kids. I love teaching kids. I've been doing that since I was in Italy, in, in Italian, English, Portuguese, ballet classes, jazz classes. Um, but then I feel like I was blessed to learn jujitsu from somebody who also learned jujitsu as a child who was the creator of jujitsu. So most people teach jujitsu classes to kids as a watered down version of adult classes. I've seen like a little kid came to me and he was trying to do the spider guard, but he didn't know like how to base out and he didn't know like so many fundamental reflex things, but he knew this move. And, um, so yeah, I try to bring it back to the way I learned jujitsu, which I was so, so happy and pleasantly surprised to see was still inside. It was in my muscle memory when I started to come back to it as an adult. That's, that's a tremendous uh, journey right there. And that's just, a, that's just one segment of your life right there too. All that, all that you said there. I got another picture to show you again. I won't spoil everything in this book, um, but there's another photo here. Um, I can you announce your sister's name? I don't want to say her name incorrectly. I just think this is a great picture of the both of them on this. Beautiful. That is Colleen or Colleen. Colleen. Yeah. Gotcha. That's beautiful. Beautiful name. Beautiful name. And I'm Kawan, and Kawan one one is like one. And so my we joke about my she didn't have a name for like maybe. I think like either eight weeks or eight months, but she didn't have a name for a long time. And then her name became Kaolin. So we all joke, it's Kaolin Kautu. <laughs> uh, I love that. I love that. That's great. I love that. I, I love that. That's so cool. But it's just, I mean, just a, I mean, just fast forwarding, you know, looking at, you know, I guess what I'm doing now, one of the most 
one of the most important takeaways um, that I got from your father's book, um, which, you know, obviously got me to uh, get in touch with you, was that how deeply personal he got here. Um, so obviously, needless to say, you're mentioned many times in this book with your sister and the rest of your, uh, rest of your family, um, your father's family. But it's... Um, he really touched on things that, you know, you don't, uh, you don't think about until you're like a little bit older, you know, again, now that I'm a dad, it's like, you know, I don't, I don't force my daughter to do, it. I just got her a uniform a couple of weeks ago. So I'm excited about that, but I just put it on her and I'm like, Hey, that's cool. Right. Okay. Let's take it off, put it back in the box, you know, and then put it away. And then, you know, I bring her around when I'm doing classes. So I just think it's, I think it's really what impacted me a lot was, you know, watching in a lot of these photos as well as, as much as maybe even more than the stories uh was kind of you kind of hear him smiling through telling these stories about um you know raising you guys um from little people i guess all the way now to big people and you know you guys <laughs> and you guys still do jujitsu like even when you're not you know like you know i've watched your dad you know for you know many weeks doing that sort of promotional tour and talking about this stuff and he sounds like he's so tuned into um and you guys sound so similar you, you're so tuned into you know sort of that cosmic perspective um which which rings a bell with me um can you talk about like any any philosophy of him particularly that's like that's really i don't know maybe that you still think about or um something that like something some part of his philosophy about living that's also sort of in tandem with jujitsu that you can take <clears throat> Um, honestly, my dad and his philosophy, my mom and her philosophy, they've impacted me so much. I don't know what's me and what's their philosophy and who's who. Success. But, yeah. The last time, however, that I was with my father, I had a, as we get older and we see each other, maybe less with living life and being busy. Every time we get together, we laugh really hard. And there's probably a moment where we both end up crying. <laughs> That's awesome. And um, this particular conversation, I was actually thanking him. I was thanking him for all the stuff that he taught me, you know, about being humble and um, hundreds of things that I can't even mention right now that he's put inside of me that have made me who I am. And I was like, dad, I just really want to thank you for giving me all these lessons. It was so incredible. And he's like, Mia he calls me Mia which is my daughter. Yeah, yeah. You, you got to thank yourself. I've said these things. I've taught these things to many, many people all over, but it's you who simulated them. So that was like a blow mind blower too. You know, it's very easy when, but it gives you some flattery for you to be like, oh, thank you. I'm glad you learned all that stuff. But even that, he was able to reverse it and make me feel good about myself that I was able to assimilate that. So that just shows that shows how impactful and how subtle his and how deep his influence is for sure. That's awesome. Did you get any um he obviously speaks a lot about um preparing for a fight you know, have some experience in, in the competitive aspects of things me mostly striking obviously but um, uh, i feel like i resonated a lot with um how your father got himself ready um being in that mental state um and i find it's you know i hear a lot of martial arts 
when they try to, I hear them sell it a lot, but I don't see a lot. I don't see the arts instructors necessarily live the lifestyle, if you know what I mean. And um, I feel like he's like one of those guys that talk and walk and walk. And I feel like the preparation for his fights was sort of legendary. Um, do you remember any of that preparation? And is any of that, uh, if you had, if you do remember those preparation, fight prep, do you, does any of that carry into what you do present day? Yeah, I do remember his fight preps. I remember him leaving to go to Japan for a month and we having to meet him. Um, he was very serious about his training. And I think at that level with what his his dream was, what he was trying to do and prove, he had to be very focused. However, I feel like my dad has always had a really good relationship with his intention. And I guess like now after hearing his podcast or people talking about it in his book, I can see that that was something that he had to work on for himself to be that comfortable and to be mentally prepared for the situation that he was facing. I feel like he's never, he was not, he could be laughing. He would be laughing and playing with us in the waiting room and then, okay, and go to do his fight. It was never something that he had to be like mentally angry about or put himself in this place. He was able to do that so easily and quickly that it was nothing that affected his kindness or his presence in the moments right before, which I think is incredible. Like to this day, I know that it's very difficult for people to take themselves to that spot mentally and physically it was a different time also if that's um if that makes sense it was so new and so raw and so uh unpredictable that he he was prepared mentally and I guess kind of going back to the the philosophy and the training question um I think that for sure the number one thing that my father has passed to me is like just really being present in this mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. and breathe 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 every time I see him it's like breathe are you breathing breathe breathe <laughs> um, no it's the title of the book by the way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really funny that's a very cool thing that uh, that uh, that I uh, I mean the title obviously is, is super cool how he discovered it was even cooler um but i really want to um go back and touch on you so like your relationship with i guess your immediate family members like uh, i don't even know who came like who came first I, I i believe i believe crone is last and i believe hoxon was first i'm not sure um but can you not can you put it in order for me just so i i get a good sense yes there were four of us, Hawksong, yes. Kaolin, Kaolin, Krum. And we're all at the right time of the year, two years apart. Holy cow, so, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, you think you think that was planned though? Is that a Gracie thing? Is that is that a is that a plan somewhere in there? No, definitely not planned. If you ask my mom, none of us were planned. It was all a mistake. You're here, surprise. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Hundred percent. There was um, there was a passage in here, um, which uh, which and and again, I haven't even just to let you know the impact of the book. I haven't picked up, I haven't picked up this book in probably a week, um, and opened it up, 
And I'm just quoting all this stuff, just from these are things that are coming right off my mind. I don't have any cue cards or anything in front of me. This is just pure off the top. Um, but there was a passage in there about, um, I guess, the philosophy of names in your family, because a lot of R's uh, are in the family, mostly on the guy side. Um, but there's a passage that reads like the R's. There's a belief that the R names that start with R, letters R, C, and K uh, are really strong. Can you talk to that? Or speak to that sort of, um, I guess, that philosophy. It sounds very cosmic, kind of pinging on what you were talking about a little earlier. I'm bringing that back out. But um, it, that's pretty cool, like, to, like, you know, have sort of a predetermined, like, okay, if they come, if this is going to be a boy, we're going to name him this. And it's going to start with this letter. What's the, what's the philosophy uh, behind that? So yeah, they say that if your name starts with an R, with a K, with a C, it has a lot of strength to your name. It's going to put strength to your name, which ultimately your name affects your personality and who you are, which is we wanted this strong army of people. Uh, so Hik Song, Hawk Song, I thought that was so appropriate. Like there's literally a letter difference. Hawk Song was that he was the letter difference but the same and just incredible and then my mom kind of created all the rest of our names from the k um kawan kaudin kron kron turns out she found out later is like a god so she didn't know that when she was doing it um kawan is like the god of femininity i found out from an indian culture so there's different significance to our names in that sense um for me personally kawan my name is different in brazil today it's a boy's name and i'm not a boy <laughs> the last time i checked i was not a boy you just beat boys up that's also, all yeah but it's also very unique and different here not only was i cow so cow you know so cow on that was kind of offensive or quan quan um but i never gave myself a nickname i never let anyone give me a nickname that wasn't original i feel like my name was difficult and i had to face a lot of things because of that but that made me stronger now i love my name i'm so proud it's so you know whatever original or unique and it's me that's who I am I am that person I have embodied my name I'm confident about it so it's kind of crazy but your name does affect you and affect the personality that you have and I got to really see that and experience it and now look back and see how that has affected me because I used to get picked on and teased and I but I wouldn't go I no one called me Kay or whatever it was called one and figure it out or whatever. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like it. I like it. So you don't look down anybody with like, when you meet new people and they have like a letter that doesn't start with an R, C or K, you don't be like, ah, they're weak. <laughs> no, not at all. And to me today, I really tried to be good about remembering people's names and pronouncing properly. I think that's so important. You know, I, I see students come in all the time and they have very complex names and maybe I can't pronounce it right away. I also can memorize better when I read. 
Yeah. And so maybe they'll tell me and I can't register it and then I'll say it wrong. And they're like, oh, that's okay. And I'm like, no, that's not okay. This is your name and this is what you should be called. And so now I feel like I even give people confidence to uh, expect people to say their name and to be honored and happy that they have a very unique name. Usually I'm just like, Hey, my name's Quan. I've gotten it wrong many times. So can you just tell me one more time? I'll try harder. <laughs> right. Right. That's, that's so cool. So Kawan, that, that's that. Am I saying it? Am I saying your name? Right. So when I was in the States, it was Quan. And then I went back to Brazil and in Portuguese, it's Kawan. So then I decided when I moved back to the States that I want two syllables in my name. So now I like to be called Kawan or Kwan. Kawan, oh, gotcha. yeah. I heard you yeah. say it in an interview one time because I wasn't sure how to, how to say it. I was like, let me go type her name up. Here. <laughs> I want to hear how she says it first. And then if I go business based off that, you know, because I'm big on that too. Like if I, I have a te I teach many students, um, I can't, I don't even know what number I'm at right now, but I'm just grateful that I'm in the position to teach. I look at it like that um, and to be able to serve people because it is a service business, what you and I do and what your family um, has basically been doing since the beginning of time. Right. Um, but it's really important. I actually said that to um, a student that yesterday evening. I was like, hey, he said to his, I couldn't hear his first name all the way through because there's a lot of traffic and whatnot. And we were, I was just training him right in front of this house because, you know, COVID center is sort of sort of unique in, in that sense. So we're outdoors and and uh, the introduction was very interesting because I was like, no, as like, if I'm saying your name wrong, don't accept that. Tell me, hey, this is how you say my name. Like me being whatever level black belt doesn't have anything to do with respect. Right. It has to, you know, like I can't just, you know, drive over your front, your first name. We need to be able to understand each other. And you have to have the confidence, like you said, to tell me, hey, that's not my name. This is what it is. And boom. And it was uh, it changed the direction of our class entirely. And I feel like, you know, regardless of the techniques or whatever he took from that lesson, I know he I know he was touched by, you know, hey, he stopped to say, hey, it's OK to tell you you're wrong. This is my, how you say my name. It's very important. Yeah. Very important. Very, very important. And for the person, too, that gives them just a their space, their confidence, like you said, their security to, hey, excuse me. I mean, I've gone through classes and called Greg, the whole class, someone named Michael. Right. And they didn't correct me. And I was, Greg, 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 Greg. And they would respond. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Right. right. And it's and that, and that too, just the ability. Um, and I can already tell you're a great teacher without having to, you know, watch you. That the fact that you can, you know, I think I think the identity of uh, the identity and you could correct me if I'm wrong here, if you feel different. Um, but I believe the identity we're going through a shift in the identity of a martial arts instructor, what that means. Um, I think it's very different from what it used to mean. You said and I guess when I started doing it in the early 90s, it was like, you know, the you know, the picture of like a big, strong person um, at the front of the room. And it's not like that anymore. At least that's not what I've become. Um, you know, I'm six, four, I'm pretty tall. Um, so I already kind of have a head start on a lot of people in that department, but, um, I don't use my height, uh, to get the respect in the room, if that makes sense. Um, or my size, that's really just built off of developing that personal relationship with, you know, who's in my class. Cause I, I want them to know, I care about, you know, them first, you know, what they're doing and when they're not in front of me, I want those three things to be understood. 
Um, so I feel like, you know, a martial arts instructor now should sort of embody that um, and not just in the classroom, but be able to like really follow through, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that um, one of my professors, Professor Mateos, he taught me one time that uh, an academy, because being an art, it's an academic, it's a lifelong process. The academy is going to resemble its master, its sensei, its head professor, whatever you're called in your martial arts. Uh, and if you really think about it, though, Professor Splinter from the Ninja Turtles, he yeah. was a tiny little guy. Yes. And I think sometimes we have this illusion of this tough guy, this strong, big person. But really, uh, even in the Karate Kid, real masters, real teachers, they teach in a very subtle way. Sometimes they're not even teaching you something that you are picking up on that they're teaching. 100%. And I think that has transgressed through the beginning of martial arts, through the beginning of history of humanity. Like if you really want to pass something on medicine men, shaman, martial artists, right. um, excellent yeah, medicine and doctors, but I would think more of in the shaman range. They don't necessarily tell you, hey, you have to be humbled. They are humbled. So you learn that through them or patience. Hey, you need to be really patient. I'm going to tell you to be patient and that's going to teach you patience. Right. You end up becoming this thing that people just want to emulate your energy. They feel you. So... I personally have never experienced this tough guy, big sensei teacher experience. I think in the real martial arts world that I've been in, people resemble who their head is. Maybe the head guy at this one particular gym is a tough guy. And so then everybody's trying to be tough like him. But are they really learning stuff? Are they real martial arts in all fields. You're absolutely right. At the beginning of our um, conversation, you said that it's the same. I mean, really what you're generally teaching is discipline, respect, reflexibilities, patience, and that even karate, taekwondo, tai chi, every martial art is beautiful. And that's what makes it an art. Yes, yes very much so. Now, I got you here. You know, I got to ask you this question. What do you think is the most, and it's a, I'm only, I'm asking you this with an agenda, okay? So, but it's a, it's a good one, just letting you know. Um, because I can already sense, again, this is our first time really speaking, but I already get such a sense of what kind of instructor you are. And, it, and I think it's wonderful. Um, what do you think, and I get this all the time, this is a our podcast, so I get this from all the time, um, ad nauseum. What do you think is the most effective martial art? <laughs> <laughs> well, historically, I can tell you it's been proven to be jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> That is why the UFC was created, and yes. I think you took care of that. <laughs> yes, I believe so. Yeah. However, um, personally, for me as well, I think the idea of that's one of the few martial arts where you use no strength. You you can train. I had the blessing to be in Pedro Valenci's 
academy in Florida where he was teaching a private to an 81 year old and a 79 year old, two black belts, 79, 81, and they were training together and practicing. So if you do boxing, it's too much for your head. Sparring, it's too much for your head. Hits, punches, like, so jujitsu, in my opinion, is not only the most effective, but it also lets you be what you are, who you are. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be aggressive. You don't have to be violent. And if you are, you can be. If you are jujitsu and you're stronger, use your strength. If you are jujitsu and you want to be a little more aggressive, I mean, if you're doing it in a competitive ambient, go ahead. So I think, yeah. I'm slightly biased, but I'll, jiu-jitsu is perfect. <laughs> I'm gonna say there's a big bias there. I just had to ask you. I had to ask you. Well, I've had I've had um just to give you some background. Um I've I've been training uh Taekwondo about almost almost 30 years. Um when I really uh, think about it. But um we're coming up on that at least. And then um I had a, a great, um great, like really fabulous going going back to our prior um conversation on instruction. Um, I had a really great instructor, the one I landed on, at least because uh, I took this personal journey um, and uh, I was getting I found myself getting too comfortable with um, where I was in terms of my progress. You know, I was like, okay, you put me in a room and I know I can be everybody here or at least in my mind. Like, you know, it's like one of the you just sort of fast track it in your head. Like, okay, checklist. What like this guy can take care of him. I can take care of him. And then I was, I was, it was almost like being, I guess, the person that the smartest person in the room, that kind of thing. I don't like to be that person. I want to be in a room where I can learn from this person. I want to learn from this person because then you look back so many years after you're the top person at the room and you haven't learned as much um, because you haven't put yourself in situations where, you know, you now need to learn. And I, uh, I was, I think, um, this was two years back, but I took my son around with me. We sort of did like a tour of jujitsu schools. I was like, I'm going to do jujitsu. I just decided. I was like, it's time to it's time to get put to sleep. So let's figure out where we're going to go. And um, I went to a couple of different schools. I'm here in New Jersey. Um, so I went to a few different schools. Um, I had I had one bad experience where uh, I couldn't <laughs> just before Christmas, right? And New Year's. So I got, I got, I think I got put in a real bad um, rear naked choke and, uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't talk for the next like four or five days. Like I was like, <laughs> just couldn't, my, in fact, my larynx was crushed, my voice box. Um, but we were sparring on the first day, which I didn't think made any sense because it's like, if you're going to, if I'm telling you, Hey, I'm walking in here as a fifth degree black, but only to tell you, don't teach me any differently than you teach the white belts that I'm just giving you my background. So, you know, if you see a flash of coolness, like it's from that background, but I don't want special treatment. Um, and I made that very clear everywhere I went. Don't give me any special treatment. Um, but I didn't. I didn't think sparring on the first day was really a great idea. So I was like, okay. Um, and then I. I mean, that's like me yeah. taking you to Maverick. You know, it's just you don't do that. Like, uh, let's go, go to a triple black diamond ski mountain. Right. <laughs> on my first. On my first day. So, um, but you know, my son's recording everything. It's re- it's real funny. And then. I land in, um, I believe he went with me here too. I went, um, this is like right after work. I go into New York City really quick. Um, and I land uh, at Ronin Athletics um, in Manhattan. I love by Christian Montes. Shout out to Christian Montes. Um, awesome, awesome teacher. I mean, like just 
you wouldn't, you wouldn't like, if you put on like regular clothes, you wouldn't be able to tell he's able to do all this stuff. And I was, I had to say, I was pleasantly surprised by the effectiveness of the art, especially given my size. I'm a strong guy. I'm young. I'm big. I know how to move. And none of that stuff mattered. Like all the attributes, all the attributes, all those attributes, even speed, none of all those things were just uh, additions. They were add-ons. They weren't the actual core principles of the martial art. So I was getting held on the ground uh, by someone probably a hundred pounds more than, uh, less than I got for like five minutes. And I'm like struggling. And I'm like, yo, how am I, how am I not able to push? This? I'm using all my power. That, that obviously I start to fizzle out. Um, and, and he's just like, yeah. So, um, you know, I think that my trial lesson was with, um, instructor there, uh, Johnny, uh, Garcia, who's also a phenomenal guy. And, um, you know, wonderful brother. He was just like, yeah, how do you feel? And I was like tired. And he was like, well, he said, that's just your intro, your intro. Now we have to do the rest of the class. And it was just an, I just had an amazing experience and it was cool to just, um, see what you could see how fast you can learn when you put yourself in a different environment where you go from being, you know, top, I guess, top guy, whatever, but you know, all the way down to like an unknown. I like that. I like to be the unknown person in the room and, and new to things. And I just got to tell you, it was really an amazing experience. If I can continue, I will definitely do it. Um, but I'm fascinated with all the things I'm learning. Uh, and I, I think I fast tracked a lot of the concepts um, just from translating my time in Taekwondo over to Jiu-Jitsu. I was like, okay, that's how we did it. There's got to be a leverage somewhere. There's got to be, you know, but if I had known any of those things, I wouldn't have understood as fast. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm good at all, but um, I, I watch other people, um, obviously your family dominate and uh, it's just, it's cool because you're sitting next to somebody. I'm like, yeah, you're watching a, it's like when you go into a bar, right? You watch a fight. We're like, we're watching completely different fights right now. You're thinking he's working hard and he's actually really not working or she, and um, they're not doing that at all. So um, that was just a, a fascinating uh, journey for me. Um, but I definitely, uh, I don't know. I guess my question to you really comes out of that uh, as well. And I'm sorry for the long dialogue, but um, my question, my next question to you is, do you think that there is such a thing as a, an incomplete martial art? So for example, jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu is great. Um, I think from what I, my limited understanding, it, it maybe only lacks takedowns or throws, I guess. Um, to get you to the floor. Maybe that's maybe one of the only things I really see. Um, but I feel like Taekwondo without a ground game, no good. Cause then you catch my foot, then what? What's the next step, you know? And then someone who's got all that stuff already, night, night for you, you know? So what do you think about that? Um, I think that jujitsu at its root is a self-defense. So it does cover the ground aspect. Those things maybe have gotten a little bit forgotten because people are not so focused on it anymore. They're more focused on the groundwork. I also think that you are correct to say that if you already have a martial arts background, when you go to learn another martial arts, you have a great advantage. It doesn't mean that you know the martial arts but you already know more about your body. You already know more about weight distribution. You already know more about what is speed or aggression, things that if you pick up somebody who's never done anything is not going to know. Um, your story is about the same story as I would say 
maybe 90% of people who start jujitsu, this guy who is the tough guy, what we call in Hawaii, the king of the rock. It's really easy to be the king of the rock. And then you go to the mainland and you realize (laughs) there's a lot of other kings out there. (laughs) That ain't it. A a pack of lions waiting for you. (laughs) Yeah. Gentle ones. Gentle ones. That's why a lot of people like um, one of my friends here, Anaru, who is a black belt here, he just got his black belt. He literally said that. He's like, I started jujitsu. This little tiny guy pinned me down and I was a rugby player. He's 6'4 as well. Huge, you know, Maori guy. And then he's like, what the hell? This is not how it was supposed to go down. And that's the same reason that jujitsu became so popular in the States when it was starting as well. I think that, um, yeah, I think martial arts, uh, I do think that jujitsu is a complete martial art. I think that if you learn all the aspects of it from the origin, you will get that. Even if it's not the takedown, you know how to counterbalance because not necessarily do you need to take somebody down. Usually it's about self-defense. So someone is attacking you and you counterbalance that energy coming. You can either connect or you can deflect from an energy. And that is what allows you to take someone down or not. I think, um, what we're seeing in mixed martial arts, if you really MMA, I think people have forgotten what MMA stands for, which is mixed martial arts. So if you are really good at jujitsu, if you do a judo or a wrestling, if you do boxing or kickboxing, then you're combining a lot of stuff and you're even better because you specifically know how to strike. You specifically know the takedowns. You specifically know the groundwork. Um, and nowadays they don't, they don't teach you just striking, just takedowns and just groundwork. They kind of mix it into this, MMA, which is really a bunch of kind of poorly taught a little bit of everything where you're better off going to a boxing studio and learning how to box or a kickboxing studio or specifically going that route. Crone has a black belt in judo from one of the best studios in LA and he worked really hard. He came in as a black belt with his jujitsu black belt into the studio. So he wasn't a white belt. He already had concepts, he already knew. So I think like after a little while, he got his blue belt right away. But then he had to go through the whole rest of the process to learn judo, to be a black belt judo master, which is beautiful. Yeah, exactly. I think judo is very complimentary to jujitsu. I think wrestling, there's things about it that I really like. I think it's a little aggressive. I personally don't like the aggression. I don't, sometimes it's just an explosive jerky movement where you pin somebody's head down or that doesn't really appeal to me. That doesn't seem so artistic. It does. It is a strength game. So I prefer personally martial arts that induce leverage and connection and, Anyone can do it if they have the right disposition. So judo is more beautiful to me because it's not about how big or how strong. It's about getting under the hips and it's about using their weight to counter. I don't know that much about every martial art there is out there, but for me, those two are very beautiful. I don't know, unfortunately, that much about um, taekwondo or karate 
to see what the goods or the bads are of those things. But I have done wrestling and I've learned incredible things. And then I've also found that some of it would only work if I was really strong or really trying to be aggressive and hurt someone. So then I wouldn't feel comfortable teaching a little kid that. Right. Right. A hundred percent. It's, um, if I guess if I were to answer, answer my own question, I'd put it like this. Whenever there's poor management of distance, bad things happen. That's yeah. it. So regardless of where your distance is, because there are many people, right. That say, okay, well, you know, and they're purists, you know, I've, I've studied under the best guy that I, I think there ever was. Um, I was a student of the founder, um, General Che. Uh, so we studied directly with him, uh, Grandmaster Soo Jung Kim, and he's phenomenal. Um, and reminiscent of your father in, in respective of the philosophy um, aspects too. Um, but I, whenever I've seen any bad distance management, I've seen whether you, know, you like to throw, whether you like to grab, um, whether you like to strike, um, whenever you can't manage that distance that you should be operating from anymore, then that, but then the problem begins right there. So I always tell people like, you know, whatever your distance is, like just be a master of that. You don't have to play the other person's game, but you have to, you have to be on top of it and do the best. You know, you don't have to necessarily mix a whole bag, but um, I do find um, in my experience that my type, my Taekwondo, I'll say my Taekwondo with, uh, the jujitsu, the limited jujitsu I learned autumn, just in the first couple of months, it was just, it was just like, I, I felt like I could take anybody just doing a couple of months worth of classes. I felt like I could literally, I was comfortable on my back all of a sudden. I was standing up the, the right way. I didn't know that. It's watching my daughter stand up because, you know, as babies, they, they get oh, up yeah. the right way. I say this in all of my lessons to this day. I said, watch how, and I, I, I literally was studying my daughter during the past. I was like, all right, watch how she got, I just put her on the floor and she would just get up that way. And I'm like, yo, that's so cool. And the instructor was right. You know, you kind of, you walk into a studio and you want to, you want to believe everything a martial arts instructor says, but oftentimes you want to put it to the test at the beginning. And um, as you should, as you should, everything. I, I always say that. I always ask, I always ask my students, I said, don't just do what I say. Like in your mind, like if we're in a 50 person class, do it, ask me the question at the end of the class, you know, just so we can get the flow going. Sometimes I do actually stop. And I'm like, hey, like, you know, how do we feel about this technique? Be like, okay, well, this doesn't work. I'm like, yeah, but don't believe that it works because I'm telling you, I'm 6'4", 220 pounds. I don't, I, I could close my eyes and throw my foot this direction and I'll hit something. You know, you're five feet tall. See, test the technique. Use the scientific method here. Test it. See if it actually does feel right for you. Um, but I, I encourage, I encourage the questioning. But no, the the combination of synthesis, synthesis I, that I feel, which is very unique between what I do um, and crossing that bridge over into the jujitsu territory, I, I can't say enough good things about it. I really can't. Um, it's, it, I really feel amazing. I like the frame escape a whole lot. Sometimes I'm in my, I'm in my. Uh, I'm in my bed and I just do this sometimes. I <laughs> just try to remember some of the uh, the things I was taught, but I'll, I'll get back to there. Um, there was a part of the book um, that was really devastating um, for me as a parent. Uh, and I, I lingered on it for quite some time. Uh, and if you're uncomfortable talking about it, you let me know. Um, but your father details um, in this wonderful book, uh, the passing um, 
of Hawks and Gracie's mother. Um, there was a lot of lead up to that. Um, and I, I was I was really, really deeply, profoundly impacted by uh, your dad's philosophy surrounding his departure. I just wanted to touch on just for a moment um, that chapter and uh, I guess what it was what it was like for you um, and how you guys, I guess, as, a, as a, such a strong fighting family, um, were able to face that uh, and possibly maybe with even the use of of the martial arts as a as a vehicle to tra help transition through that time. Um, I mean, my brother's passing is the worst thing that ever happened in my life. Uh, you don't get over that. It changes the dynamic of the whole family. He was the older brother. Now when people ask me, I don't know if I say I'm the oldest. I don't know if I say there's four of us. Uh, I had to really do a lot of my own soul searching and have my own answers. And I think everyone in my family had a different experience and everyone in my family went their own route and had to find their own peace with this situation because unfortunately it's nothing that you can change and you either end it or you find a way to continue. And I think our family, if nothing else, the martial arts just told us there's no end. You don't end things. You don't quit. You don't give up. And that's what I was, I think as a family, that's what we got from that. Everyone continued. Everybody is still, is still scarred. I still have scars. There's moments that I talk about it or I'll hear a song or I'll see something and it tears me up. And then there's moments that I'll start joking and laugh and think it's hilarious. And I think it's different for all of us, but we all have gone through it and we talk about it. And um, for me personally, it was terrible. Hawkson was really, we were very, very close. Uh, but him and then me and my sister were also very, very close. And after my brother passed, the day that I found out that my brother passed cosmically was the same day that my boyfriend from Hawaii moved to California. So I had a full displacement. I totally took that emotion of protection of brother and I transferred that on to my boyfriend at the time. Um, it was it's still, it's the worst thing. It's the worst thing for a parent ever. It's the worst thing for a sibling. If you, if you're a close family, if you guys love each other, if there's any, any kind of love, it's something that you never get over, but you learn how to deal with it. And if you are smart, you will find a way to get something positive out of it. So I've gotten many, many, many positive things out of it. And for me personally, one day I was in the car, I was in his car. He had this blue Ford van. It was white, but then he painted it blue because it was the color of the gang that he was involved with at the time. And there was a huge speaker and no back seats. It was like the party van. And after he passed, I got the van and I was driving it. And one day I was up at the top of the hill, which was our spot where we would go and hang out and have parties and everything. And I was sitting there and I was listening to a CD that I had owned for a long time and I had heard it. And I had actually never heard 
it was Marcy Gray CD, and I that one song, I try to walk away, but I da-da. And I was listening to that CD. And then the last song on the track of that CD, the last track on that CD is a song of somebody saying goodbye. I wish I could play it for you. I'm sure you can play it uh, for yourself. But the last song on the track was literally somebody explaining it was Hawksong talking to me and telling me that he's okay and why he left and don't be worried and don't be sad. And I instantly heard the song. I was in the car with my boyfriend and I started crying and crying and crying. I couldn't speak and I was just pointing to the radio and just pointing to the radio and I didn't have anything to say. And then the song ended and it played again from the beginning to the end again, a second time. Wow. And I mean, I wouldn't believe you if you told me that story, but because it was me, like, yeah. I don't care what you believe, like what anyone believes or doesn't believe, you know, like that happened and it was me. And then that moment, I knew that it was him. And I knew that he was telling me that he was okay. And he didn't want me to suffer so much. So I think everyone in my family had the moment that let them kind of be more at peace or whatever that situation is. And my mom has had her moment. My dad has had his moment. And that was my moment for me to, to say like, Hey, it's okay. This is, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. Um, Hawksman would be turning 40 this year. Wow. Wow. So that's really, um, this year is a very special year. His birthday is November 25th. And, um, I'm, yeah, to this day, I think about him. I laugh. I bring him up. I think that he's very present in all of our lives. We all did specific things because of his presence. And we all had different reactions. We all, you know, suffered differently, grew differently, went in different directions. But for me, that was what was the most impactful. And I think just overall, we're just not a give up family. So we, we didn't give up. Um, but going back onto a lighter note of your daughter, you know, we as kids, we're perfect. We already move, we have so much movement, so much mobility, and we unlearn that stuff. Today, in this day and age, we're either standing up, we're sitting in a chair, or we're laying down in our bed. We never like transgress through all those levels with flow, with mobility, with getting up, with being on the ground. And babies do that. They crawl, they get up, they walk, they hold, they fall, they roll, they... And they throw, they grab, they chase, they climb. So hold on to that, you know, tell your baby daughter to hold on to that as much as she can promote that in her. We didn't have couches. We didn't have chairs so that we had those kinds of experiences at home. We were being flown like airplanes. We were rolling around on the ground. We were darting each other to poke and itch and get that little tiny little reflex of moving around. And yeah, so I see that in children all the time. I, it's so much easier to teach a child than it is to teach an adult. Say that part one more time for our audience and the people in the back. Can you say it one more time? 
it is so, so much easier to teach a child than it is to teach an adult. You just have to be there. Like children, they can read you. If you're not patient, if you're not present, they're not going to give you what you want. But if you are, it's magic and you can see it right away and they pick it up right away. So I always say, I love when people tell me, oh, I've never done this before. Perfect. Perfect. That's my favorite kind of student. Bring it. Because if you have, then you're questioning everything and you're doing something that's a mistake. I have to not only teach you something, I have to correct the mistake of the person who taught it to you wrong. Yes, yes. Very, very, very important. I I mean, I've had a long uh, career still going, uh, thankfully. And I think the most special relationship I've had um, even though it just means I'm getting old now, is to see the kids that I used to teach um, now as you know, people, like real people. Um, adults uh, have careers, 401k, pensions, family, um, and a lot of, I just promoted a student uh, this past uh, Saturday to, to adult black belt. Um, and I used to teach him when he was, he had to be probably like by my knee. So, you know, and now he's standing over me, literally, he's about this much taller than I am now. So it's, um, you know, which means you can see the probably the gray on top of my head, but uh, it's kind of cool to be a part of a, a person's life that you don't even realize that I'm sure you've, you've been there where you just have that moment, like, well, I've been teaching you that long. Holy cow, where did the time go? Um, so I, I learned more and more about uh, time. Um, as I as I spend time with students who, you know, it, it's one thing to like have an adult um, because adults don't change too much, right? Um, they're pretty pretty much just like, hey, what you doing? I'm going to party. I want to do this. Okay, it's like a limited set of activities, although they can range pretty wide. And then kids, it's just like you have, they could be, they could tell you they want to be a firefighter one day in five years there, you know, uh, you know, a jujitsu, you know, undefeated jujitsu fighter. Like, like, holy cow, I didn't see... I didn't see that coming, but you know, it's, it's really, it's really special. I think, um, in martial arts to be part of people's lives. That's really like where I find the impact is, you know, you at some point, and I described this to somebody at some point, right. When we do things every day, it's choice. I always, I like to analyze my days. Like there's choice there. Right? I chose to get up at this time. I chose not to, or I chose to do this, but choice. And I find that students, who stick with you for a long periods of time um, or continue to continue to choose you as their instructor. And I think that's a really important thing that's not spoken about. I'm very humbled to that. Fact. I'm grateful to my students for you know continuing to make that choice to continue to stick with me. What do you think about that? Um, one time I was talking to Hoyler when I was teaching at Gracie North and we had some very good kids. We had some little rascals that I just wanted to throw against the wall every once in a while. Uh, <laughs> I, remember <laughs> I remember him very specifically telling me, come on, if you think about it, if you start teaching, I start, I would teach kids as young as three years old. Wow. So they're young. Um, started three and I taught there for three years. So let's say there was a little girl, Gracie, her la- her first name was Gracie for you to see how the cosmos and she started the cutest little blonde thing, three years old. And I taught her until she was six years old because I left, I would have kept teaching her forever. And she probably would have kept being my student forever, right. but I left. 
And uh, Hoyler told me, you know, Kawan, if you go to school, you switch teachers every year. If you're doing a sport, you could go to a different team all the time. Um, if you're in high school or college, you have a different teacher for every type of class that you take. Every semester, you have maybe more than one same teacher. Mm -hmm. But as a martial artist, you may have that same teacher for years, like your student that you just said that you promoted to black belt. Yeah. So that's 20 years. And I've heard, I have a friend in Brazil, Luca Bianchi, who trained with Hoyler from when he was a little kid until he was a full grown man. The influence that you have, you're second only to the parents and the siblings right. and the person's character building. I know that. And you too, like, what you gave to your student, what I give to my students, it's so much more than a martial art. It's like whatever you are, whatever you show them, whatever you make them feel, that's what they're going to become. You're influencing them more. You know, sometimes parents are never even home with the kid these days. You know, unfortunately, we got work. We got so much stuff going on. So them coming to you, they you're more than a role model. You're like a parent. You're like a teacher. You're a philosopher. You're you're a coach, you're a motivator, you're a big brother. And the influence that you have on their life is second to maybe parents and siblings, you wow. know? And never that, when, yeah, like if you think about it, your, your boy that was at your knees and now is a full grown taller man, who does he have in his life that has been there this whole period of time? You know, probably people he can count on his hands, probably not even most of his friends. It's like the effect that you have, the impact, the power is. And then it's like, what are you trying? What are you going to do with that power? Because you choose, you can be aggressive, you can be short, you can be mean, or you can be patient. You can show them humility. You can show them compassion. And that has nothing to do with it. I've never been in a fight. I've never had to be in a fight. I think my stern face, I can smile really big, but if I make my mean face. <laughs> when, when I first added you right on Instagram, I thought I was like, she's fought someone for real, for sure. With this, thing. She's fought someone. I, I, I know it. And that was going to be one of my, you, answer, you already answered one of my next questions. One of my last questions I had for you. So uh, there it is right there. And you've never, and you've never had to. Why though? Never had to get in a fight. Why? I think that your confidence, your just ready to go vibe. Nobody has ever tried to come after me. Like one time, to be completely honest, there was one time when I was in fourth grade at my school and elementary. Two boys came. One of them was a little bit fatter. One of them was skinnier. At that time, I was very scared and intimidated, but probably they had a little crush on me. I don't know, but they both came and da da da. And, you know, I pushed one down. I just did a simple sweep, take down, mounted him, and the other one went running, and I didn't do anything. I just got back up and just let him lay there on the ground and ran. No, no like, Americana then? <laughs> yeah, I didn't even Americana. I just left. I was, like, just happy that I took him down. And he was so shocked, like, his face. <gasps> Right. But yeah, like I never, I think that um, your energy gives off what like people are not going to mess with you based more on your energy than on if you can fight or not. Like I, I've been in very complicated situations and um, 
yeah, I think just keeping your head up and looking something in the eye and, you know, I'm ready to go. I'm ready, whatever. How much of, how much of that is, your, how much of that realistically is your, is your, I was reading up the dynamics of, um, you know, from time to time I have like a second and I like Google and I'll be like father, daughter stuff, like, you know, like I, I never read a book on like how to be a parent. Like I was like, the Egyptians did this without a baby book. I could figure it out. Um, and then I look up um, father and daughter, you know, some things like just to be mindful of um, just that having that presence um, with them. And I, I, I got from I think I was listening to Jordan Peterson. I think he said, uh, you know, that determination um, in, in a in a in a man's daughter comes from from the father or a lack thereof um, in some in some sense. Uh, comes from either the presence or or lack thereof um, of father. What do, you, what do you think about that statement there? Um, I had a very present father, and I'm very determined. And I, I mean, my crone jokes with me all the time. Like in our, I think my dad's philosophy was never tap, never give up. Yes. And I'll be, <laughs> I'll be training with crone, and he's got me in a fully extended arm lock, and I'm still trying to fight it. And he's like, "Come on, I'm gonna pop your bicep. I think you should tap now." <laughs> my man, that's it. Yeah, I know that's that, that, but is that that determination really good? But does it comes from? I guess it does. Does it come from from having dad be that or watching him be that strong, or or is it more of just a mat, or is it more the playful side? Because from the book, I got a sense that you know when he touched on when he touched on topics concerning you guys, particularly your, your, the his kids, it was very playful. Like you could, it's a completely different look at you know like his his own life like you just feel like all right well he's known for this so that must be all he is and he's like no this is actually not all i am and this i i am this without without having to put a flag in the ground and say it loudly it's so it's so well written um those chapters that involve you i wonder and that's all peter peter is just an incredible writer an incredible human being and he's been in our life forever so just a huge blessing to have him write this book because I don't think anyone else could have written it as poetically and clear and honestly as he could have with my father. So that's great. And um, as far as it's the invisible fathering. <laughs> I knew you were going to say it. I, I'm, I'm going to win a bet with my friend. I was like, she's going to say it as I promise you. Ten dollars. He's going to say it. Without me having to say, she's going to say the word. It just came out right now. That's it. Because he didn't, he would never tell me like, don't ever give up. But he would show me that like, okay, this story just came into my mind. I remember when I was in college and I had a dance performance where I was the choreographer. So it wasn't even a piece that I was physically dancing in. It was just something that I had put together. And at that time it was kind of, uh, um, a thing for my brother. I was still kind of getting over it. And it was the first time I got to put on a full production and it was about my brother. And I invited my mom, my dad, everybody came and they came from LA, like on a Thursday night to Orange County to watch this performance. And it was beautiful. Everybody was happy. It was great. And then at the end I was like, wow, dad, like I wasn't even in the show. Why did you come? Like you didn't have to come. It wasn't like I was starring in it. 
And he's like, Mia figlia, if I don't support what you do, who's going to support you? You know, he would just say these like really subtle, simple things. Like, so what did I didn't know at that time, but what do I get? I'm going to support my family every chance I can. Like, who's going to support them if it's not me? And then that can be even bigger. I'll support you. I'll support whoever I can help, whoever I can lift up, because if I'm not helping people, who's going to help them? And it's more about just taking personal responsibility about who you are and what you want to be and what you do. I think in all fairness, though, I must say I am a formally trained dancer. And it's one of the things that Cronin and I can relate to is like dance is very competitive. It is very much a discipline. It is also an art. So I did get some of that stuff. Like your foot's broken, your toes are bleeding, you're sore and you got to go and you got to do it again and you got to do it again and you got to smile bigger. So those kinds of things, like I said, they really complement each other. I'm only who I am today because of everything I've ever lived. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love that philosophy. I love that. Um, I love that, uh, that story there too. That's, that's so cool. Um, is there anything um, that you wanted to plug in? Anything that um, we should be looking out for? I know you sent me a link uh, the other day for, uh, I believe it was a dance class, and I apologize I wasn't able to make it. It was a, an insane, uh, an insane day. But I will do it. I will do one with you. Count me in for the next one that you end up doing. That was um, a little fundraiser I did here for the homeless in New Zealand since we're on lockdown. Some people are having a harder time. One of the beautiful messages that my friend Emily wrote, which I hadn't even thought about, is like, I'm on holiday. I love being locked up. This is a beautiful place. But for some people, that means totally different. That means no food. That means domestic abuse. That means, you know, locking, no communication, no connection. And um, yeah, so I just always try to do my part to help whoever I can. And again, that was not that long ago that I got this message and it's, it resonated with me. It made me think about wow, like, yeah, this is great for me, but maybe this is not so great for everyone. And what can I do to help those people who are in that situation? Um, I live in New Zealand. I do workshops here. If you're ever in New Zealand, look me up, hit me up. Let's get together. My um, Instagram is Quan Gracie, pretty straightforward. And yeah, I just want to spread as much love, confidence, and joy to the world. I would strongly suggest anybody listening now go follow you on your Instagram because your lives are like super dope and it's like cooking and it's like, I almost want to get my apron, figure out how to do something while my wife's asleep real quick since she cooks more than I do. Um, so I'm going to keep following you, but very, uh, but very, very educational too. Very cool. Um, I have one last question for you. I, I thought about uh, asking you this and I'll ask it straight out. What do you want your legacy to be? Even though you're a Gracie and that name comes with a lot of responsibility, a lot of gravity, a lot of weight. Um, what do you want your personal legacy uh, to be? It, it doesn't, I mean, I know you're a martial artist. I know you're a dancer. Um, you seem like you're not confined by any one thing, which I love. Um, you don't allow any activity necessarily to define who you are, but what do you want your legacy, um, to be while you're here? Um, I would just love to be remembered as love, joy, light, happiness, making everyone find that in themselves mainly because 
Um, I'm a big believer in the spiral. So you can either be on the upward spiral or very easily on the negative spiral. And like you said, it's a choice. So um, I want to spark the upward spiral and as many people as possible through dance, through cooking, through confidence, through martial arts, through just a genuine hug and a smile and a conversation. And also, I really, really encourage people to be more curious about their health, their physical health, their mental health, and their spiritual health. Just um, something that I came across recently is like we always talk about balance and we want to find this balance. And recently, I realized that more than a balance you want to be present in what you're doing in every moment. You want to be present. You want to be there. You know, time is our most precious commodity. It's our most precious currency. You can spend it and you'll never get it back. So be very present in your time here with what you're doing and let that have a very positive ripple effect in the world and in everyone around you. Awesome. Possible we see you, can you envision yourself at 70 years old teaching jujitsu on the beach, retired somewhere? Can you see yourself there? Hey, I hope so. I will definitely be practicing and I'll be an eternal teacher, an eternal student for sure. I love that. Such a, such a great answer. It was, um, it, it has really been a pleasure. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Kawan Gracie, everybody, thank you so much for joining us uh, today and being a part of this podcast. Really, uh, I really want to give you a special thanks. I'm very very humble to have you on for having uh having your time i know it was a little weird to send you a, a dm like hey my name is such and such um i'm sure you get plenty of that um but i'm glad i checked out with you um and i'm glad we were able to make this happen and make this a thing. i already feel uh it's the beginning of sort of my day here um so i'll definitely be carrying this energy uh into my day and like you said just wanting to affect other people that way is, is important that's our job here right that's very good thank you so much chris it was a pleasure to get to know you a little bit better and uh i can't wait to see the magic you're making over there thank you so much Mrs. so thank you so much guys this is mastery podcast episode nine we're out <laughs>